Welcome to episode 28 of Brain Tools, the final part of our Brains at Work series. Today, we have a big one for you. You are going to learn about resonant and dissonant leadership, the famous Project Oxygen study by Google, and the role of human mimicry in leadership. Plus, discover how limbic friction impacts leadership, learn about creating a brain-safe environment for better team performance, and giving feedback that doesn't hurt people. You'll learn all this in the episode. Let's get four practical brain tools. So let's get into it. The final Brains at Work episode is here. It is on leadership and I'm joined as always by Sam. Sam, how are you? Well, thank you, my friend. Very excited to be talking about leadership. Bit of a hot topic, especially amongst my friendship circles there, getting towards that end of uh, their careers where they become leaders. How are you, mate? I'm going well, mate. I can't believe this is the, the fifth and final installment of this Brains at Work series, hey? Start off with productivity, yes. then we sort of went into the resilience section, trust, and then obviously teamwork last week. Go check it out and leadership today. And as you said, a few friends going into leadership positions at the moment and it's tough. It is tough. There are quite a few friends I have going to leadership position and I think controversial that leadership may be the hardest thing we do at work. And learning leadership is often painful. It means lots of stuff ups, lots of personal growth, and more awkward conversations than you can poke a stick at. <laughs> Don't know if that resonates with your kids. Oh, oh no, that's so res- I love the poke a, poke a stick with business. But uh, you're so right because there's this, I think even when I, having gone through leadership, at probably a stage I, I wasn't ready for, I'll be really frank with you. I think there's, there was always that massive tension between your personal productivity, well-being and achievement and your mm. team's productivity, well-being and achievement. And it's this constant, constant tension that you try and reconcile with. And it's so hard. And I think Ronald Reagan sums it up pretty well, where he says the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. They are the ones that get people to do the greatest things. And I think that reframe of, we talk about what leadership is being different to being a worker, so to speak. It's not necessarily about what you achieve. The outcome of good leadership is really about employee engagement. It's how many people are you making better every single day, every single week that leads to the outcome we all want, which is you know increasing your bottom line and making an impact, making a dent. Mm. And it's all about expectations. As you said, the mismatch in expectations between what a leader thinks people should be doing, what they do, what the outcomes actually are. So this episode is really for all the employees out there learning to lead or conversely, all the leaders out there struggling to lead through this crazy uncertain time. These unprecedented times to use some news jargons because there's no real- Hot topic, hot topic. Hot topic, yeah. As if we haven't talked about it enough in the press. There's no real manager's guide to the pandemic, but there is one thing we know conclusively from both the research and anecdotal experience, and that that's great leaders never dictate. They rarely dictate. So I'm in my mind, I'm thinking about that 80s management style where you've got top-down management, KPIs, goals, targets, directives, uh, instructions. All of these things coming down from these top line level leaders, executives, telling people what to do. Whereas when you look at a lot of the research, research coming out of the neuroscience, uh, neuroleadership institute, I should say, David Rock, or from different business institutes around the world, Harvard, uh, Harvard Business School is another one. One of the key characteristics they attribute to a great leadership is the ability to install autonomy and emphasizing autonomy. 
In fact, there's actually a paper that came out, which was a neuroscience paper, and it showed that autonomy raises productivity uh, in an experiment they, they ran. And to kind of conclude out this point, there was a, a study they ran in 2014, Citigroup and LinkedIn survey, which found nearly half of the workforce would give up 20% of a raise for greater control over how they work. That's crazy. It's just giving up more. It's like, hey, I want more perp, more autonomy, more control over what I do and my destiny in it. And it does sort of tie in really well with like ambiguity bias, right? Which is like, mm. we don't like ambiguity. We don't like uncertainty. And we don't like when stuff is taken out of our control. We like to contribute to that. And as you rightly pointed out, it's no longer a case of managers and leaders coming up with the vision and mission, just saying, do this, do that, like that widget thing. It's very much a much more dialogue that needs to happen in order for effective teamwork and leadership to take place. Absolutely right. It's also, as we know, that there is a direct correlation between our sense of control, autonomy and agency, and our stress response. It's proportional when it responds. There's an underlying question there that probably should be answered too. And what is the difference between leadership and management? Yeah, good question. Um, and I think it's a good question more because if I can be really honest with you, Sam, I had no idea what the difference between those two things. I think for the first like two years of when I was quote unquote a leader, quote unquote a manager, I was using, using them into like interchangeable. Like, oh yeah, I'm a manager. Oh no, I'm a leader. I don't really know. But I think the, the fundamental difference anyway, if we really get to the definition, leadership is really inspiring the group of people to believe in a vision. Whereas management is making sure the group executes daily to achieve those strategic goals. And they're essentially two sides of the same coin. Problems, Sam, arise always when people fall to the extremes of these two things. You fall into what we call, uh, like to call macro leadership, where people love to paint a vision, paint things, but just don't get anything done. So you don't actualize that. Or you get into micromanagement where you're like, like getting in the weeds too much, making get, making people feel really uncomfortable without telling them why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I think I've seen it in the workplace before, but have you? I've definitely seen it in the workplace before. And both situations are terrifying because you can have these big picture leaders coming in setting unrealistic expectations for teams. But on the other side of the things, the leaders who struggle to relinquish control, which we know stresses people out, actually creates more stress within the team and therefore creates these barriers for the teams getting work done. So I, I've seen it, but I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I've definitely seen it before. <laughs> yeah, we don't need a news article being written about us yeah. <laughs> naming, naming people. Um, and Brain tools. <laughs> And aligns with Google, right? I know we spoke about Google um, on the yeah. previous episode on teamwork, um, where we looked at you know their Aristotle study on what makes really effective teams. Um, but they also Google went through a period of time where they said in two thousand and two, Sam, we don't like managers, mm. go away. They got rid of literally all oh, their wow. managers and said no. Um, it didn't work out very well. And so in 2008, they brought them back and they call it literally a necessary evil <laughs> to get things done. <laughs> um, and they ran a project called Project Oxygen. And there were 10 yep. key behaviors that they outlined from this study, which I found really interesting. So I'm going to list them through and see which ones resonate. Is a good coach, empowers the team and does not micromanage creates an inclusive team environment showing concern for success and well-being, is productive and results-orientated, is a good communicator, they listen and they share information, they support career development and discuss performance, they have a clear vision and they have a strategy for the team and where they're going to be, they have the technical skills required to advise the team, they collaborate across departments, 
and they are a strong decision maker. Now, I'm tired from saying those 10 behaviors, to be honest with you, but there's 10, right, that they found empirically through their research in Google. Sam, which one of them stand out to you out of interest? So it's a great list. Personally, I think the one that is most intellectually intriguing to me is creates an inclusive team environment showing concern for success and well-being. Mm, interesting. And why, what's the science you reckon? Oh, it lines up with what I was looking at in terms of some of the more concrete neuroscience and neurobiology behind what great leaders do. And one of the things they principally do is great leaders create these brain safe environments where people can thrive. So we know that in conditions of unsafety where brains are challenged by things like certainty or exclusion from a group, trouble settings, or fear of an outcome, ambiguity, uh, as you talked about before, what can happen is team members, we can experience this amygdala hijack, this limbic friction. And during this process, effectively, the the alertness and threat parts of our brain, the, the amygdala, the insula, the other subcortical regions, are going to this hyper alert state to protect us when we feel unsafe, when our brain is unsafe. And in this state, what actually happens is we see reduction in executive function and reduction in function in your prefrontal cortex, which is all the parts of your brain responsible for thinking and planning, creative creativity and putting things together. And what that basically states is we have this biological need for certainty, for, for safety from a brain perspective and from a social perspective. And there are lots of studies that back this up uh, that show psychological safety or, or brain safety allows for more risk-taking, for people to speak their mind, to be more creative, to stick their neck out without fear of being judged. And it is directly correlated to team performance. So I think this is really, really interesting, that point to me, because we know creating brain-safe environments is really, really effective for, for individuals, but also for teams. What about you? Did you find any studies that kind of mimic this? Yeah, I did. When you were speaking about that, by the way, I just thought about like how it's like school, like leadership and work, like leadership as a teacher and stuff like that. Oh, like, isn't it just? I'm nervous for school and it's like, it can be a very unsafe environment where it's like bullying and so oh, on. Yeah. Sorry, just sharing my childhood <laughs> trauma there. <laughs> no, that's such a great parallel though, because I think often we carry the scars of our childhood with us and all those environments where you felt unsafe socially at school you, you were absolutely shitting yourself going to school in the morning. I had a couple of those days. I don't know about you, but I had a couple of those days. It's the exact same thing when it comes to, as you said, work as well. Like when you, it's, I think a mentor once told me as a, as a leader, quote unquote, that you know your environment is not a place you want to be if your headspace is not right. Because people just absolutely mm. know what's going through your head. You are a reflection of the organization and the environment that you create. And the, the study that relates to that point is this difference between resonant and dissonant leadership. Um, where resonant, yeah. you're empathetic, you're high IQ versus dissonant where you're authoritarian and quite objective. And the study was actually done at Case Western Reserve University with one of our our great mates, Daniel Goldman, who's obviously a great mate of the show, <laughs> clearly, um, who wrote the, the, book on emotional, <laughs> wrote the book on emotional intelligence. Um, but they basically did yeah. fMRI scans um, of, of leaders and executives, and they asked for experiences to do with, you know, resonant leadership and dissonant leadership, and it was leaders and largely their employees. And when the employees were asked, they found that when people were asked for, like, had the resonant leaders, that 14 brain regions were actually activated. But when dissonance were done, it was six areas, but then there were 11 regions of the brain that were actually deactivated. And so the conclusion that they actually made from this is that resonant leaders 
are more likely to activate attention, social awareness, and positive relationships. And it's that link with oxytocin and trust that we've spoken about. Whereas dissonant obviously is leading to deactivation, the shutdown. And you talked about amygdala hijack that happens. And it was a really nice extension of your point on that brain safe environment. Mm. it's almost as if dissonant leaders are switching off these crucial parts of the brain while the resonant leaders are engaging and turning them on and activating them yeah it's so well, look fear not great <laughs> fear, yeah fear is not great it's not a way to work and we also know i didn't touch on this before but there is specific research out there that shows when we're under these stress and threat conditions the parts of your brain responsible for memory formation, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex physically shrink. So, you know, unsafe leaders, shrinking brains. Do we really want this? No, we're not, we're not shrinking heads like we're in uh, the Caribbean here. Speaking of points that do resonate most strongly with you out of the ones you listed, which is a really poorly framed question. I, what I'm wondering is which one of those was your favorite? Which one did you read out of those 10 key behaviors at? really yeah, draw your attention. The one that just drew me in magnetically, it was has a clear vision and strategy for the team. Mm. And I think also because it's spoken so much about, right? You've got to have a vision. You've got to know your mission. You've got to get people bought in. But there appears to be this really big disconnect between having a vision and a mission, um, actually putting that on paper and then getting your team to believe in that. And a study that was done by the Neely School of Business actually in Texas, Texas barbecue, so good, um, where they did EEG <laughs> assessment um, and they basically did um, sensors to capture electrical activity of the brain and leaders were asked questions. They were asked questions specifically for their plans for the company and the future and they actually, while they were connected to this EEG, were writing their vision statements and coders took all this data and they looked at the scores based on whether they were coming from the self or whether the leader was coming from a team perspective. And this conclusion, Sam, was so sick. It was, I like, like hit the nail, like a, a piece of the puzzle put in my, my head, which was leaders that use social language, the pronouns of we and us, were correlated with increased coherence in the right frontal part of the brain compared to self-language, which is I and me. And for their employees, they were perceived as more inspirational and charismatic. And it was simply by the language that they were using and that link with resonant, dissonant leadership, a vision and team versus me, the person and my selfish needs. Well, makes perfect sense. You think about the people who talk, to use the, the culturally relevant term, and with inclusive language and inclusive wording and inclusive phrasing, they're bringing people along with them on that journey. That's an invitation as opposed to a dictation. Yeah, I, I really agree with that point. More so from the, the perspective because I think, again, this is getting more history vibes, but we've seen so many leaders lead through fear. And I think, yeah. and all the popular leaders either either are really fearful or extremely charismatic. And what the research reveals is that the leaders that are the best, quote unquote, are getting stuff done, we don't know who they are and they go so unnoticed. <laughs> like oh, yeah. we don't know Actually. who they are. We don't know what they go about, but they're just there getting the job done, leading and managing. Yeah, they are. That's exactly right. Because the history books don't write about the leadership that led through love and led prosperity. It doesn't make for a great history book, does it? And everyone was happy all the time, forevermore. And remember, the winners write the history books. Exactly. And there's there's no tension in that story. So that wraps up the introduction section, talking a little bit about uh, leadership, about brains, how they work, how it works together, the qualities and characteristics of good leaders in terms of the brain. 
and how you lead. So you've learned a lot, hopefully. You've listened to a lot. I want you to just take out your phone, get your notes app open, and as an exercise in retention and retaining this information, just write down three things you learned. Try to cover them off, write them down in your own words, because in a minute, we're going to jump into the brain tool section where we're going to give you four practical things that you can do. Well done. You've made it this far. So if you are loving this Brain Tools episode, share it with one person you actually think can benefit from this episode. And welcome to the Brain Tools section where we're going to give you four practical brain tools for leadership and using neuroscience to lead better. But we also love to give you a bit of a context and a frame for thinking about these before we do them. We do. And we've got to call them primers today because we just want to do a right-click synonym word job, word document job today. <laughs> the word um, job. <laughs> absolutely. So there's, there's two main primers here. And look, when we go through these, these almost could be brain tools, but we wanted to make sure we mentioned them because we've spoken about Pareto's principle for 80-20, that 20% of the inputs are responsible for 80% of the output. And the first one's this. You want to model the desired behaviors. Humans are amazing at mimicry. It's how literally from zero to 10, 11, 18, we learn stuff. And so as a leader, if you want certain behaviors to take place with your environment, then you have to embody them yourself because you will be a reflection of what your leaderships do. If you're late to work, as an example, every day, 20 minutes, then you can't expect people who are following you to do the exact same of like be early and be on time. So that's the first one. Sam, thoughts? Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, you don't have to look any farther to, than kids to see how much they copy each other and adults and they learn. Adults are no different. Absolutely. And the second one is using the principle of inversion, which our mate Charlie Munger loves to talk about, invert, always invert. But you want to know what leader you don't want to be just as much as knowing the type of leader you do want to be. And through your experience, if you have actually followed someone before and you've seen their behaviors, you want to make sure you've been taking notes before you become a leader on things that they did that you're like, hold on, why did you do that? That wasn't what an effective or a good leader would actually do. And I think knowing those two things in advance are going to solve a lot of the problems you'll encounter, hopefully, as a leader. Um, That's my second one, Sam. Also your thoughts. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. Because if you don't know what you're trying to avoid, you're going to end up doing it. The real question is, what brain tools do we have for the lovely listeners today? Zero. None. <laughs> Turn it <laughs> no. off. No. We've got four. And I'm going to start with the first one, Sam, which is brain tool number one, craft a compelling vision. Now, we spoke about earlier in uh, the episode all about vision being a really important part of the Google study or Project Oxygen. And there was a study that actually supports this by KPMG. They did a full-on audit, shock, professional service firm, in 2015 of all their leaders. And they found the following. Leaders that discussed purpose were about 94%, which is good. Wait. Um, And then basically, leaders that didn't discuss purpose were 66%. Now, the question you're asking, Kieran, what is that number? And the key thing of that number representing is whether it was a great place to work. There was a 28% mm. difference in these two numbers based on whether a leader actually discussed purpose or not. And the people that didn't discuss purpose versus did discuss purpose were three times more likely to be looking for another job. And so it really raises a key and salient problem, which is if people don't know where they're going, how they're doing, and why they're doing it, they're more likely to be disengaged. And so, Sam, the solution becomes really, really clear, which is you want to create a compelling vision 
that aligns with the team's vision and the individual's self-interest. It makes a lot of sense when we think about the fact that people we're wired for certainty and knowing what comes next as part of our prediction machines and our brains. We want to know what their path is. And if leaders don't articulate that, then it leaves all their ambiguity on the table for the brain to run haywire, so to speak. My What I'm thinking about is have you used this? Like, I know you're in a leadership position in, in your current role. Is there an example you could give uh, of you using them in the real world? Yeah. So there's a few steps going through and I'll be honest with you. I learned this more through uh, my mentors as opposed to me figuring out on myself. Cause like I said, I don't think if I can be really vulnerable with you, I don't think I was a very good leader. And maybe like in the first two or three years, I think I was a good worker. Um, still adopting that mindset of I need to get my work done without realizing you need to bring a lot of people along with you. And so these were the steps yeah. that we sort of went through, which were very, very helpful um, in the end. And the first one was really in putting this vision in practice, you want to define what your big, hairy, audacious goal is, your bahag, which is Jim Collins talks about a lot, which is that big, really bright star that shines through that gets people really bought in. And so you want to define that. And for us, it was working with a million students. It was that like big thing that was like, hey, that's a really big number, one. But two, yeah. it means a lot to us because we care about kids and we care what we're doing. Um, the second thing that ended up happening was um, my mentor told me to write a newspaper article <laughs> 10 years forward. We were talking about eulogies previously, but it's a newspaper article, Sam. You've got some question marks on your face and I don't know why. <laughs> I, I've never thought of that before. I like it. Yeah. And the newspaper article in reality was a force forward, a fast forward into the future, which is things that have happened since. And it was things like, what does your office look like? Um, what's in it? Is there you know, a pool table in there? Is there a table tennis table, whatever it might be? How many people are on your team? And what have you done in the past you know, 10 years that makes you say, wow. And that like fast track is something that you're proud of and what you want to be on the trajectory, but it's really compelling vision that you put down. And the only last things that I just want to touch on in implementing this is obviously super important to share your vision with team members, but most importantly, ask them for feedback. The worst thing you can do is say, hey, here's my vision and boom, this is what you're going to implement. You need to obviously make sure that there's some dialogue and they can add things because they want to be a part of that vision. What would they like to see in this newspaper article? What they would like to see in the future as well. And the last and final thing is when you when you actually hit milestones on the way to that 10-year journey or five-year journey, you celebrate like crazy. You celebrate for the progress because humans are motivated massively by progress and leaders obviously are motivated by that as well. And that's brain tool number one, craft a compelling vision. Not only craft a compelling vision, but communicate it out too. That newspaper article I did, that's brilliant. Like, What a great frame for figuring out what that vision looks like. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. You're welcome. To give your mentor a pat on the back, perhaps. <laughs> Speaking of next steps, we're going to talk about brain tool number two, and this one goes out for leaders and managers alike, and it is goalposts, not playbooks. My question for anyone listening and anyone ever is what happens when someone tells you what to do? Just travel back in time. Remember when your parents told you you had to take the bins out or you had to fold a sheet on your bed or had to do your homework? You instinctively push back. And this is called reactance. It's a psychological phenomenon that we experience in relation to the extraction of our control. So rather than delegating tasks, which is what managers and leaders often do, Share the goal, the outcome, the vision, and ask people to find their own action plan to get there. Mm. So what you're basically saying is we want to avoid that whole teacher mindset of I'm telling you what to do, so do it. You want to get some agency 
involved. Can you just can you talk a little bit more about this concept of reaction? Because I'm right in saying that's like the backfire effect, right? Yeah, very, very similar to the, the backfire effect, whereas the backfire tech effect talks more about marketing in particular uh, and, and media. This is to do with behavior. And the original studies were actually on children. So a lot of reverse psychology comes from reactants. And what they effectively found was when they told um, kids not to play with a toy in this big study with hundreds of kids, what did they go and do? Lo and behold, they played with the toy because they were pushing back on that reduction in their control. And there's, since that initial work that was done in 1966, there's been a lot of expansion on this, this idea. But effectively, we are wired for choice. So if you look at some of the research papers out there, they, they will show you that we experience choice as a reward in the brain. It's actually rewarding for us. But then when you take away choice, we can experience that uh, in the same regions of the brain that process pain. So reactance is just this neural mechanism of the brain saying, hey, we're losing control in this situation, so we should push back to, to regain control. So people people will like to exhibit their free will and they like to see that that is actually happening. Take this idea then of the goalposts, right, not just the playbooks. How would you in a work situation go about implementing this? Because I, I think it aligns perfectly with the idea of creating a vision. Um, yeah, how would you go about doing it? So the first step obviously is to – to dictate where you're trying to go, which is that vision component. So A, you share the desired outcome you're delegating, what that task would look like. We're trying to get 20 new leads a month each for the sales team, or we're trying to create X, Y, and Z documents uh, for the, the marketing team, whatever your team is. And then the second part is, this is the most important part, rather than turning around and saying, okay, to get here, you need to do 100 calls a day, or you need to be working on this, 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 and this. Instead, share a couple options for ways to do this. Here's one way you could do this. Here's another way you could do that. Here, this, here's this third way you could do this. And then ask your delegated team members to choose what path they want to whack, what they want to take and what they're going to track. And we know because of things like the eye care effect and the endowment effect, when people choose their own course of action, they're more likely to stick with it because they're going to value it more as it's come from their own brain. But there's also a reduction in this overall reactance because you're no longer telling people exactly what they have to do, but instead showing them where they need to get to in terms of the team and the goals, and then allowing them to find that path for themselves. And to kind of wrap it up, it's this idea of leading with agencies and agency and choices to get team to team goals by using goalposts rather than specific playbooks, then letting your team members define their best path. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that point, as you said, if you are setting a clear goal and you're creating sort of the boundaries by which a person can execute, it means, as you said, they're more likely to lean in and actually own the problem and the solution set, which I think is really important. I think for, um, and I'm just thinking about people who are probably new at work and when leaders are leading, people have just started. I think I totally agree with you here. I think we want to just be mindful that, um, people don't just tell them still what they should do. I think you can also take a frame of, hey, this is what I don't want you to do. So you set really clear expectations because it's the worst when someone produces something and the leader's like, nah, don't like that. And you're like, but what? (laughs) What you said, said go go gun ho. Yeah, that's a a really important frame. It's putting on some training wheels, but then not pedaling the bike for them. Oh, analogy king, Samuel Holston. Well done. (laughs) I've been listening to too much Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> we love him. I love that. Well, that beelines yeah. perfectly into brain tool number three for me, which is if you've created that compelling vision, you are you know playing goalposts, not playbooks, which I like a lot, then brain tool number three is becoming a teaching coach. 
And Sam, you highlighted a, a problem which is happens a lot of the time, which is leaders can be super, super quick to tell people stuff without un- understanding what the person's asking, what they want, and what they need. And so it comes down to this fundamental difference between teaching and coaching. And so when team, team members don't know something or they need expertise, then you need to give them information that requires a teaching moment right? But when team members need help crafting their solution or they're struggling emotionally, they just need someone to talk to, they might need advice. That's when you adopt the coaching mindset. And so the the thing that we want to be really mindful as leaders we want to try to get to is to become a teacher and a coach, depending on the person and depending on the situation. Yeah. So you you need to have a multi-perspective on how you handle how do you manage other people, your employees in those situations? Because you can't just be rigid in dictating one mode of thinking. Is there any work or any research that backs up this this premise? Because I've I've heard of teaching and coaching a million times. I don't think I've I've found any science myself on it. Yeah, in 2013, in the Social Neuroscience Journal, there was a sort of article slash experiment done called Visioning in the Brain, an fMRI study on inspirational coaching and mentoring. Hey, talk about a movie line. And what they basically did as a baseline, they actually did this with graduate students. So the context, to be fair, is not in work, it's at university. And what they did is they measured emotional tendencies first through a questionnaire, and they did two separate interviews in the space of five days. One interview was what we would call a positive interview, and they would ask questions that was very much a frame of optimism, such as questions like, if everything worked out ideally in your life, what would you be doing in 10 years? So very more of like a motivational disposition. The negative interview was more performance-based. It was more stuck in the now, which was, are you doing all your homework? How are you doing with your courses? It was very specific to that area. And the conclusion they found across all these graduate students was that the positive interview, again, had greater brain activation in visual processing, in global processing, in empathy and emotional safety and motivation. And it showed you that it's not that one's better better than the other, but you want to be mindful of how you use it and when you use it based on the people that you're speaking to, particularly in the analogy of work. Yeah, we've got to be really, really mindful as well because as we talked about before with the with, – and this is something we touch on, that sense of safety and control and using threatening language can and have a really, really detrimental impact on employees, on your team members. You're speaking about using this at work and I really like this idea of teach and coach and teaching and coaching. Are there any specific ways to implement this brain tool? Yeah. So I think the the first part, and this comes down to what we were talking about on episode um, 27, where we really looked at teamwork. Um, you want to hold regular one-on-ones, right? You got to know your person. Yeah. So you want to put them in the calendar. You want to treat this as sacred time and you do them outside of the work environment. It's very much that signal that I care about you as an p- individual and I care enough to put this in my calendar, dedicate time to it, and that's our sacred space together. Now, the nature of that conversation can take many different routes. It can be based on work. It can be based on personal, whatever you want to do. But the frame, Sam, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is open-ended questions should be the driver. It's the what, it's the how, it's the why. You want to avoid closed Mm. questions because you want to open up the floor so then you can spend 80% of your time listening as a leader, really trying to understand what's going on, and then 20% of the time talking depending on the situation. Does that sort of resonate? Yeah, it it does because I'm thinking about some of my best leaders and they definitely led with all those how, what, why questions. Yeah, spot on. And then when you get to the end of any conversation that you have one-on-one, this is classic sort of teacher and coaching, right? Which is you want to 
in a non-condescending way, and I mean this, get them to repeat back to you what they understand. There's always a fundamental difference between teaching and learning, where teaching is the intention to transmit knowledge, and then learning is I've actually taken on that knowledge. So often, Sam, you've probably done this through tutoring experience. There's a massive disconnect between what we think someone's taken on board and what they've actually taken on board. So you want to make sure it's like, hey, can you repeat that back to me? Hey, what have you understood from our conversation? Um, Is there anything that you didn't understand? And then you leave with clear actions and deadlines. And based on that first point we spoke about, you need to make sure as leader, you execute those actions. Because if you don't execute the actions as a result of the conversation, then why on earth would they execute any of those actions? And that's brain tool number three, become a teaching coach. It comes back to that mimicry. If you're not going to execute on those actions, how can someone copy you and do the same? That that point's really, really salient about getting them to re- repeat back the actions and deadlines. And I'm just thinking about a couple of times I had kids I was tutoring five, six years ago And the days I didn't ask them to tell me what work they were going to do, I'd come back a week later. Lo and behold, they hadn't done any work. But then when I asked them, okay, what are you going to do this week? Can you write that down? They did it every time. I love that frame as well from you, because it links with your brain tool, which is you ask them for what they thought the actions were as well. It's like, hey, we're at the end of this. What are the actions that we should put down? And as you said, it's that endowment um, generation IKEA effect that works a charm. It works a charm. We just like things that come from our own brain. We trust them more. There's some really great work on that by Dr. Moran Surf. But coming into brain tool number four, advice, permission, feedback. Mm. Advice, permission, feedback. Talk to me. Okay. So the, the frame is most times when you give feedback, it's received as an attack or a criticism. It's almost like a social punch. And a lot of people will know this because they've had situations where someone said, can I give you some feedback, followed by some words that really, really hurt. And often these words trigger the brain's threat response, which actually makes your team members more stressed. So instead of framing your feedback as feedback, frame it as advice and ask for permission. Can I share some advice? And there are a couple of reasons why. So everyone has experienced that moment when someone gave you some horrific feedback. Maybe you (laughs) cried. Maybe you felt like the imposter syndrome just welled up. Maybe you thought you never wanted to do work again. And so according to research coming out of uh, Harvard Business School, feedback has little impact on our performance. And actually over one third of the time, it negatively impacts performance. Feedback negatively impacts performance. In particular, for women, it can be really, really harmful. So there was a study conducted by professors Shelley Correll and Caroline Simard at Stanford University, analyzed over 200 performance reviews across high-tech companies and professional services, and they found that compared to men, women who received feedback were le- women who received feedback felt there was less likely to be tied to business outcomes, was more vague mm. and challenging to implement. So we know that it can be quite harmful. Feedback can be quite harmful overall for employees. Absolutely. And especially feedback, especially when feedback's a surprise. So if you are like communicating that feedback on a regular basis and it just comes in one big annual performance review slash appraisal, then it's really hard for someone to change their behavior. Like, you know, we believe massively in iteration and trial and error. And like, I think obviously that needs to be a really important part of it. That's just my my frame or thought initially that comes to mind. It's a, it's a really, really good perspective. And I'm thinking of it from the the context of receiving unsolicited feedback that you didn't want as well. So not only just that once a year performance review, but when someone turns around and comments on your work and gives you some feedback when you didn't ask for it, half the time you're thinking in your head, 
go away. Why did you say that? And the other half of the times you think, oh my God, that was so mean. I can't believe someone just said that to me out of the blue. Like rarely is the, the frame in your brain, oh yeah, feedback. I can't wait for someone to rip apart my work. And this is aligned totally, as you said, with being more of a, a coach in this particular situation because that question of can I share some advice is, as you said, you're not making any assumptions about it. You're actually clarifying first before you speak. So my question on this is in an everyday work situation or if you're a leader, how would you go about using this? This one's really, really simple. Don't give feedback. Never frame it as feedback because we know feedback can trigger this threat response and some of the different pieces of research. According to the Harvard Business School research, instead ask for permission and frame it as advice. In fact, research actually shows that advice giving leads people to think about their future actions uh, and what they can do as opposed to focus retroactively on on the past. So the implementation is really simple. Use this phrase. Can I share some advice? Can I give you some advice about X, Y, and Z? Can I suggest a couple of things? Just that permission frame and advice frame will help you mitigate that feedback mechanism, which can trigger the threat response and the the fight, flight, fear, arousal, alertness response to the brain. And so to wrap it up, to use this brain tool, make your feedback feel brain safe by asking for permission to share it and framing it as advice. And that's brain tool number four, advice, permission, feedback. The thing that is aligning really well, I think with that, can I share some advice that's just coming to mind, just popped into my head is like, you ask, can I share some advice? And then focusing on your observations of the behavior becomes like a way to extend it. It's like, can I share some advice? I've noticed example A, B, and C. Have you noticed this as well? And you get another sort of commitment from the person. And then as you said, that allows you then to, you know, give advice, give suggestions when the person themselves might recognize what's going on. And as you said, that more yeah. safe environment, so to speak, psychologically safe, still being meaning you're being direct, meaning you're being specific. Um, but you're focusing on, as you said, on the behaviors and not necessarily just the outcome. You're tying those two things together. Yeah. And you're looking forwards as well. Advice is looking for improvement in the future rather than looking at critiquing past performance. So I I think it's a really useful frame of reference, even if you're trying to solicit feedback rather than asking, hey, can you give me some feedback on my presentation? Hey, can you give us some feedback on brain tools? Why not just ask, hey, can you give me some advice on how to improve? X, Y, and Z, because you're going to get this future-framed response, which will really help you improve. Speaking of improving, we've covered four very, very powerful, I would say, brain tools for, <laughs> for leaders looking for a new adjective there. Should we go back up to the top and recap? Let's do it. Brain tool number one, craft a compelling vision. It's really important as a leader to be mindful of making it very clear to people where they're going, how they're doing, why they're doing things. And so being very clear on what that big, hairy, audacious goal is, and you know, maybe even writing that newspaper article of a 10-year vision of where things going to be, get your feedback from your team members so they can contribute and feel a part of it so it's aligned with your team interest and your self-interest as well, and celebrate those wins like crazy. That is brain tool number one, craft a compelling vision. And once you've got this compelling vision, use brain tool number two, use goalposts, not playbooks. Give people the direction that you want them to run in, but then give them agency and autonomy to control how they get there, the path they take in their journey, because we know this is going to make them feel a lot safer in their brain. It's going to empower them, but also giving them control leverages that Ikea effect, that endowment effect, so they're more likely to actually accomplish these actions because they feel like they've come from themselves. And that's brain tool number two, goalposts, not playbooks. 
And brain tool number three, become a teaching coach. There is a very fundamental difference between coaching and teaching, even though it's spoken about ad nauseum. Be really mindful of the person you are dealing with, their strengths, their weaknesses, and how they like to be communicated with. When you hold these one-on-ones with this person, be really mindful of that 80% of your time listening, 20% of your time talking, and make sure that you end with an understanding of what you've actually covered and what you're going to do as a result of it. And as a leader, make sure you actually do it. That's brain to number three, become a teaching coach. And as a teaching coach, use brain tool number four, which is advice, permission, feedback. Rather than offering people feedback or giving unsolicited feedback, which we know can trigger the brain and lead to an adverse reaction, instead, frame your feedback as advice and ask for permission. Can I share some advice is 10 times better than let me give you some feedback. And that's brain tool number four, advice, permission, feedback. And Sam, as we wrap up those four brain tools, what is your 80-20 for the day? My 80-20 is pretty simple and it comes from looking at all the research and what I learned for this episode. And that's simply leadership is keeping others' brains safe, in control, and feeling like they're growing. That's a leader's job. That's leadership. Yeah, that's what spot on. You? And that that lines up brilliantly with mine, which is become a leading manager. Know that they are two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin and it's inspiring people's one thing, but also it's about getting stuff done so you get to your collective goals that you're trying to achieve. And that's my 80-20. And that's pretty much us for this week and for this series too. Brands at work, over. Yeah, five-part series, done and dusted. There are more exciting episodes and interviews to come as we start our guest interviews on the horizon. Sam, thanks again for your time, and we are done for the day. We're done for the day, and we'll see you next week. listening to the entire episode we appreciate your time and your attention and let me frank you are the best sam what can people do to support us if you are loving the show if you learned something new today the best thing you can do for us is to hit the share button on whichever podcast listening platform you're on whether that's spotify or itunes and drop that share link into a slack channel at work Drop it into a messenger group with friends or your WhatsApp chat, wherever it is. Just share the episode around so other people can benefit from it as well. And speaking of episodes, next week, we've got an absolute cracker for you. We have Australia's four times memory champion, Tanzel Ali. Really, really excited to have that and listen to all Tanzel has to share. But that's us for now. We'll see you next week. <laughs>